Hi, everybody. I'm Ralph Ben-Murgy. Welcome to Not That Kind of Rabbi, my podcast where I have no idea what I'm going to say, but I sure hope the people I talk to have something to say back. Uh, it works that way because I'm not a rabbi. If I was a rabbi, they would know what to say. They'd say, Rabbi, I this and Rabbi that. Um, in my case, I've been wondering more and more as time goes on about uh, the spiritual nature of this pandemic. What does it really mean to be in this space where everything is upside down? You know, there is... Um, uh, a holiday in the Jewish religion um, where we start reading the Torah all over again. Uh, and in preparation for that, it's a really good idea to go upside down and to go kind of nutty. There's another one called Purim, which is kind of like Halloween uh, for Jews. And in that one, it, you're supposed to lose yourself, just completely lose yourself. Drinking helps apparently. Uh, and, in losing yourself, you lose the ego sense that protects you from your spiritual self. That doesn't that makes sure that you just drive through instead of actually revealing your true nature to yourself. Which is very interesting. It's one of those conundrums we have as people. I think that we know what would be great for us, like meditation. We know full well that if we meditated every day it would just bring a clarity and a calm and a beauty to our lives. And when it comes to doing it, we go, nah, nah I don't think I want to bother with that. That's, uh, nah, I'm not going to do that. Uh, we know we should eat certain things and not eat other things. And yet we have an entire industry based on us eating the worst possible thing and it being the best possible scenario. I just watched a McDonald's commercial where everything they showed you was fried breaded and fried, every single thing except the burger, which was just fried to death. It wasn't actually breaded. I'm sure they'll have one soon. And I thought to myself, this is so interesting. And then I realized this is about salt, sugar, and fat. And that what we really are afraid of is starving to death. What we're really afraid of is scarcity. And because we're so afraid of things being scarce, we can't allow ourselves the bounty of our lives. We can't allow ourselves the beauty of our lives. We are still just poking our head out of the cave and going, is that a moose? And then going back in the cave and trying to hide from it. So that reptilian brain that does so much of our living for us, in the spiritual quest, the idea is to just tap through that, to to hit the heart enough times that you open it up to the idea that you are actually divine in your beauty. I was watching a Twitter thing to, um, a couple of days ago that literally made me start crying. It, you know, we're in the middle of all of this. And if you go on Twitter, it's people swearing at each other and racist comments and people who won't wear masks and yelling and Portland riots and all this insanity going on. And then I see this wonderful little moment where this girl, her mother has posted this on video and says, my child has, and I can't remember the name, I think it's called Sinclair syndrome. My child has the syndrome and it's hard. It makes it hard for her to have friends. But when she went to Christian camp last year, she met some girls who you know, were really good to her uh, and they live three hours away. And the girl who she's talking about, the daughter, she's taking a video of her and she's dancing and making silly faces. And then she stops because her mother's looking over her shoulder and she goes, what? 
And she turns around and the two girls who live three hours away have just walked into this restaurant. And she bursts into tears. She can't contain herself and gets a hug to the first one and then just puts her head straight down and just just doesn't know what to do with her emotion. She's so overwhelmed. And then she hugs the other girl. And I'm watching this and I think this is what it is. This is the divine spark in every single person. This is the beautiful, generous act of some two girls who didn't have to drive three hours to see this girl, didn't have to care about her because she wasn't going to be cool and did it anyway. So those are the things I hold on to in all of this. Those are the things that make me just want to do better as a person instead of retreating into the fear, the anxiety of the virus, the anxiety of the world not being what it was. And just let me think there are people and they care about each other. And what we see instead is the massive overrepresentation of conflict and drama and anger and fear. And we can't let ourselves be fooled by it. Even the public broadcaster that I used to work for for over 20 years, I'm so disappointed when I listen to the newscast. Person stabbed at Brimley and so-and-so. This person hit at this. Just one little disaster after another in a city of 3 million people. But you know what? When I go out into the world and somebody's in a, standing there and says hello to me, there's kindness and there's decency. And that's not what we're looking at anymore. We're looking at the circus and the crazy and that insane person who's the president of the United States, which is just the most shameful moment in Western capitalism so far, that this man can get this far and that we can let him. He's not the problem. He's the symptom. And we have to find a way towards a kindness and a love and a generosity or that will be our future. It's already almost our future. We'll find out in November. So those are my thoughts for the day on where I'm at in all of this and all those pieces that keep flowing in that if I'm not really opening my eyes and paying attention, they just affect me and I have no critical thinking ability to do it. I watched a, one last thing. I watched a George Carlin uh, clip that's been circulating on social media about how we're just dupes and we're getting screwed by all of this. And that these people, they don't give an F about us. They really don't give an F about us. They want us to not think. They want us to just live in their, in their paradigm and in their fear frame and do what they ask, tell us to do and ask us to do and all the rest. And it was so refreshing because it was from the grave. I mean, Carlin's been dead for a while. And here he was telling us, open your eyes. Because he said the last thing they, that they want is for you to be critically thinking. That's the last thing they want. They don't want your eyes open. They want you doing what they would tell you to do, and that's that. So I hope we can take some of that, internalize it, and do something good with it instead of making it just an, uh, you know, if I talk like this at a party, someone goes, wow, you're really bumming me out. <laughs> I, don't know any, I don't know any other way to be. Um, I have a very dear friend who is to me, a magical being. Uh, he, he plays music in a way that I, I find transcendent. It's just, I, I watch it. I've literally watched him play the piano and just thought, that's not him playing. The, the piano is playing him. It's just happening. It's just a, a moment that they're, they're having together. I, I almost feel like I shouldn't be here. 
Um, he plays beautiful music. He finds ways. He shouldn't. To... He didn't pay for a ticket. He shouldn't be here. He <laughs> and he and he has a way of mixing classical and jazz and his his feeling for for life all into some beautiful stuff. Um, he also has one of these brains. I don't understand that he can do these things. He has. PhD in French literature. He's like a lawyer. He's got he's got so much sheepskin. It's like he must be boiling. It's so hot in there. Uh, but nonetheless, he's my friend. You should. You think I'm boiling? You should talk to the sheep. <laughs> I'm Frank. I'm boiling. Jack Jackie Mason. I said, "How you doing? You're hot <laughs> these days." He goes, "I'm I'm flying. I'm boiling." If it wasn't me, I wouldn't believe it. Uh, my friend is Ron Davis, uh, and he's with me now. Hello, Ron. Hello, Ralph. What a privilege to be here. That, those are such kind words. Uh, although I ha do have to observe, I, I believe about several hours ago, you began this podcast by saying you have nothing to say. And uh, you uh, then uh, proceeded to make an incredibly eloquent and passionate um, plea and statement about the state of the world. I agree with some of it, most of it. I don't agree with all of it, but agreement is hardly the point. The point is the feeling and the depth that uh, you brought out when you didn't have something to say. So it uh, frightens me to think what would happen when you do have something to say. Um, but uh, when, when I think I have something to say, I usually have very little to say. I, uh, I believe no. in the flow, right? The shefa, as they call it right, in, in, in Jewish parlance. I, be, I believe that, every, you know, um, eat, uh, pray, love, Elizabeth Gilbert, is that her name? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so, yeah. so she had this lovely idea that, and I talked to Tom Wilson about this, that uh, creativity is a horse that f runs by while you're trying to do something. And <laughs> if you don't pay attention and get on that horse, it just runs right by and goes on to the next person. So those of us who sit and try to be creative and think something beautiful is going to happen and this thing, blank page, nothing to do. It's really not an automatic for some people. What's your, when you're, do you wait for your creativity? Do you try to push your creativity? How do you work it? Uh, I was just uh, processing that metaphor that I hadn't heard before from Elizabeth Gilbert about the horse that's running mm -hmm. by and you're waiting to jump on. And, to answer your question, I would say that's not my process. Uh, it's not a horse running by. On the contrary, I have several uh, wild steeds or wild mavericks uh, inside of me. They're not on the outside, they're on the inside, and they keep running around in circles, uh, and not even in circles, but in unpredictable patterns. And internally, I try and catch one of them and then another one, and then they all go by and then they all come at me at once. In other words, the creativity is is not uh, not that you or Elizabeth Gilbert were saying this, a linear, a linear process or a linear event. It's this maelstrom of activity that ebbs and flows and and is unpredictable and has no no shape. It's a blob. It's an it's an ongoing uh, plasma that uh, uh, takes hold of me more than I take hold of it. And it's almost like trying to make water balls. If you remember, if you remember the, um, the comic strip, the, uh, BC, um, mm. uh, by uh, Johnny Hart, I think was his name. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, uh, yeah. Johnny Hart. And one of, one of the, one of the prodigious um, uh, feats that one of the characters could do was they could make water balls. 
They could just take like <laughs> snowballs, but water balls. And everyone was trying to figure out how he did it. And he would make the water balls and hand them off. And of course, they dissolve in the hands of others. So to me, creativity is, is A, it's about the flow. I agree with you there. It's about the flow. And B, it's about trying to make water bowls. And you, you just did it. I mean, you said you didn't have anything to say, and then you took nothing, and you made something. And uh, ultimately, that's what creativity is. It's, um, it's creating something from nothing. And I, I do, parenthetically, um, lament the fact that a lot of creativity today is recreativity. Um, and it's, uh, I, I, I don't necessarily connect with it whether, uh, now this is just me, but whether it's taking, um, a classic play and presenting it for, for, from the point of view of another person, there's a certain creativity there. Uh, but, but to me, there's a lot of recreativity, but that, that's a whole other, whole other debate. So, so is that just interpretation of existing creativity? Like, so if I do a song for my father, Horace Silver, but I, I put my spin on it. Is that not genuine creativity? Is that just recreation? So a great question. And, and you plug into jazz, which of course you have a connection with, and I, I apparently am a jazz musician. So, so it depends uh, on song from my father. Um, I'm not saying that all um, appropriation or uh, wrong word, especially these days, but all usage of past materials to create new art is inherently recreative and therefore less interesting than some original creation. You could have someone who takes found materials and this beautiful, beautiful art. So yeah, you might do a version of song from my father that is just so original and so interesting. It takes me to a place that only Ralph Benmergi can take me to. On the other hand, if you do a version of song from my father and, and you know, just in case any listeners who's not aware of it, Song for My Father is a, is a famous piece of music by a jazz musician named Horace Silver. Everyone would recognize it. It's in a million commercials. You've heard it a million times. But if you do that song um, uh, and you basically recreate the original recording and then you add a little frou-frous, a little doilies and, and I don't know, you know, painted stripes, that to me is, is less interesting. And I, I, I do find, uh, even in jazz music, that a lot of... Um, uh, creativity is that type of recreativity. It's more canonic. It's more um, uh, by the book. It's more uh, academic, as it were, uh, as opposed to being going inside yourself and pulling something out that is completely different, even if it's the same. You forgot one big thing, Ralph. What's that? Are we on? Yes. You, f you, you know, your wonderful monologue. I'm sorry to digress, but in your wonderful monologue, you mentioned Purim. Yes. And we're both of the same Jewish faith, although I am of the Ashkenaz tradition and you are of what? the Sephardic tradition, <laughs> which is a bit like Toronto and Montreal or New York and Los Angeles or New York and Paris. New York and Paris. But that's another issue. Um, you failed your point to mention, being, yes. You failed to mention the significance of this day on which we are recording this podcast. I know. I was going to get to that. You say we, that. No, no, of course. I've been thinking about it for two days. Are you so, fasting? No, I don't fast on Tisha B'Av. So uh, the ninth day of Av, the month of Av, is the commemoration of the destruction of both temples. 
uh, and is uh, considered by many Jews a minor holiday, one that they don't particularly keep track of. It is part of a progression towards the Jewish New Year and the redemption of the Day of Atonement. Uh, and things are triggered in terms of the amount of thought and time and consciousness you put into taking stock of your life every year from this day forward towards Rosh Hashanah, the head of the year. Um, so, but Tisha B'Av, I wanted to talk to you about Tisha B'Av in a certain way. My take on this idea of it's supposed to be a day of great sadness and mourning. It's supposed to be the saddest day of the Jewish year, Jewish calendar, as I was taught. Yes. But and we're supposed to fast. Yes. Uh, and But here's the thing. I don't see it that way. I see it as a freedom and a, and a release from what we believe to be the only way that things can be. Because each destruction of the temple triggered innovation in the Jewish religion that allowed it to continue on for 2000 years. You know, you went from uh, miracles and human from miracles and sacrifices by human beings to the idea of rabbinic Judaism instead of, uh, you know, God's direct conversation with every person. Uh, the other thing I like uh, about it, uh, it, it, and I will I'll fold in the Kotel, the Wailing Wall, the Western Wall. We should be, in Judaism, you're not supposed to worship stuff. Idolatry comes in many forms, and one of them is bricks and mortar. And so for me, it is a great release to not have a Vatican, to not have a Mecca, to not have these things. And now, with the Jewish state, many problems have ar arisen because we are now trying to fix ourselves back into a piece of land instead of being diasporic, which has its own wonderful freedoms. So there's my thought. What's yours? Well, uh, where do I begin? Um, the point about not having a Vatican uh, goes to a point that I try and explain to people uh, about Judaism when I'm engaged in those discussions, and that is we are a completely decentralized religion. Um, there, That's why when you have 10 Jews in a room, you have 11 opinions. And uh, you could talk about any topic in Judaism, whether it be uh, the uh, right or, or the existence of state of Israel or the Holocaust or whether you tie your left shoe before your right shoe or whether women should be rabbis and this um, uh, ebullition of debate and this coruscating discourse of argument uh, will will erupt and it's because we don't have we don't have a guy we don't have a pope you know, there's this rabbi here and that rabbi there. And then if this rabbi saw that, that rabbi, he would say, you're, you know, you're a shagitz, you know, what do you know? Uh, you're a guy. And, you know, and it's even, even in the Jewish Talmud in the, in the, you know, the book of teachings, um, there are two schools. There's uh, the school of Hillel and the school of Shammai, Beit Hillel, but Beit Shammai. And one says this and one says the other. And, and I mean, we are, we are, we are, marinated as a religion as a culture in in disagreement and in um uh, opinion so when you talk about the destruction of the temple i mean look i'm not sure that people would agree that uh, everyone would agree that the destruction of the temples were uh, liberating uh, events 
for Jews. I mean, uh, certainly if that is the case, then we would be one of the progenitors, quite literally, of creative destruction. And maybe we were. But um, okay, we'll stop I, there because I oh, like sure. this. The creative destruction piece, because I, I that's think that's what I, the economist, right? Right. But that's what I'm trying to talk about is that people and change don't go together very often. And um, I remember watching a, a, a medical mystic. I can't remember her name. Uh, and she she had this lecture she was doing at Convocation Hall. And I went to see her do things because I was interested in writing some things about New Age. Um, Carolyn Miss, that's her name. And um, she was talking about there's an inner working in a person that resists change. So you're in a job. You don't like the job. You haven't been happy in your job for many, many years. But there's a voice inside you that says, look, are you going to quit or do you want me to get you fired? Because we can't jump off the cliff. Even if you say to someone, if you jump, you'll grow wings on the way down. We go, no. I'm not jumping. I'd rather be miserable in this than jump. And I think that these events that are conceived as cataclysmic at the time can sometimes liberate us. I don't disagree that generational trauma is part of the legacy of that kind of traumatic change. But I do think that sometimes to change, we need a real push. So you as a piano player and a composer can play, you know, a, a really good Horace Silver tune over and over again and nail it. Or you can go, I'm going to make trouble for myself and create symphonic music that is jazz. And it's not going to fit in anyone's category. And I, why am I doing this? I'm making trouble for myself. But it's because you actually and decide... And losing money. And losing money. You decide, I can't stop this. I have yeah. to do this. I have to creatively destruct something and recreate it. So that's how I, that's what I think I'm seeing. So you're, you're right in the way you characterize what I do, which is absolutely, if, if I may use a Latin term, mishiga, um, <laughs> and, 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 and that I, I always go down that road, but you know, I, I kind of agree with you. I mean, um, uh, even about the, the, the temples, although the funny thing about the, dis the funny, not so funny thing about the temples is you also discuss about the, you know, the state of Israel and its existence and the land that it's on now, of course, that's completely rooted in the destruction of the temples. The claim to Israel uh, by Zionism is the fact that, hey, we were there first and we got thrown out by the uh, by the Romans or the Babylonians. And uh, without getting into that debate, I'm just making that connection. Right. Between but that's attachment. So go Buddhist for a second and think of this idea that you're willing to kill and die for a wall. You're willing to kill and die for the Temple Mount. You're willing to kill and die for the Alaska Mosque. You're willing to kill and die for the Holy Sepulchre. What is that? That isn't what we're supposed to be doing with our lives. We should be loving each other, walking into each other's spaces, sharing them, praying together. But instead, proprietary rights, property rights, all of these things are about fixed notions of life that... I'm I'm Ron. This is my piano. Anybody touches it, they're dead. Well, okay, I totally agree. But um, this is where we're going to get into the yin and yang, because um, if the 
destruction of those sentiments or of those attachments or of those objects to which we're attached is the uh, condition, necessary condition of our liberation into unattachment, then remember that the destruction, and in the case of the, te the, the two temples, it's, it's, it's manifest it's historical fact, the reason they were destroyed was because someone else had an attachment to them. So right. you run in, you run into this into this loop of I'm going to destroy you uh, uh, because I want to be there, uh, but you're liberated by my destroying you. So I'm kind of doing you a favor. And then let me let me just kind of extrapolate to to another point you made in your in your wonderful opening, and that is. If that's your view, and I have to tell you, I kind of harbor this view. I also live in horror about, uh, or in in the face of what's going on, especially in the United States, but generally in the world, authoritarianism, sectarianism, uh, a, a a a seeming preparedness for violence, and and all the rest. Uh, certainly, violent language, a degradation of humans, and 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 and, and on and on. Um, then, what's going on now? is a necessary condition to uh, a great improvement. And as much as we may live in horror and fear of what's going on, I'm not talking about COVID, I'm talking about the socio-political situation. COVID is almost a symptom. Um, then uh, Trump is a liberator. He's gonna tear down the walls and it's gonna look horrible. People will die. People are dying. That's where COVID comes in because of the administration's handling of the American administration's handling of COVID, but it's going to end up in a new place that might be liberating. And, you know, that brings me back to, you know, makes me think, you know, we're, we're being critical of the United States. I don't know that I have a right to be, but here I go doing it. But, you know, it makes me think of Winston Churchill's statement about the United States. It's so true in my view and applies now. And we're in the middle of it when it's so awful. But Churchill said that uh, Americans always do the right thing but only after exhausting all the alternatives <laughs> and and you know so yeah like maybe all this craziness that's going on of which uh, um covid is this uh otherworldly symptom or manif physical manifestation is uh, a preparation is a doorway uh out of hell into a new a new reality a new heaven well, you know, Rome had to fall. Yeah. And then there there was a post-Roman. It fell? I didn't know that it fell. <laughs> a no little piece of fell, almost. <laughs> <laughs> Rome's on its way to falling. But, okay, so let me, let me weave this into something that I think is a central part of your identity uh, and that I don't have as a Jew, and that is the Holocaust. Mm. Because... I know your history and your family and that the Holocaust is an important part of that. But maybe if you explain it, we can have a conversation because I come from North Africa and mm. we didn't have a Holocaust experience. I mm. didn't lose family. I didn't, it's, we were, if Montgomery had lost to Rommel, that would have been an issue, but we weren't even Greece or any of those countries. We were, Morocco, and it just didn't happen to us in the same way. Tell me about, when I say the Holocaust, what do you say? Well, uh, first, uh, this is an opportunity for me to uh, 
honor and memorialize my parents. So thank you for that. Um, so both my parents were survivors of the Holocaust, but uh, they had very different experiences. Um, I mean, pretty much every Holocaust survivor, and I was raised in a community of uh, many Holocaust survivors and children of the Holocaust survivors, all the experiences that uh, I was uh, uh, privy to were unique and story-like. They're hard to believe. So my father was born in a small village, uh, Setumare in Romania, although he's ethnic Hungarian. He, um, his, his original name was Farkas, uh, then became Davidovitz. But um, uh, he was an ethnic Hungarian born in a small village called uh, uh, Mare in, in Romania, still exists today. I believe actually Mare means something like small city. Uh, but it was an ultra, ultra Orthodox Jewish city or a city, or sorry, a village with ultra, ultra Orthodox Jews. And there's still an Satumar sect of Judaism today that is quite extreme. Uh, well, depending on define extreme, uh, but uh, by most people's lights is extreme. And um, he was raised in a um, ultra-Orthodox Jewish school. He had the forelocks, the payas that people saw in, um, what was the name of that Netflix series? Unorthodox. Uh, unorthodox. He, he, they are Satmar, actually. That, they are he, Satmar. Yeah, yeah. And if you've seen uh, Unorthodox. So my father had that incredibly strict upbringing. And um, uh, he, uh, he uh, was raised in poverty. And he disliked the life so much that when he was 14, he ran away from uh, Romania and to Budapest and figured out a life for himself sewing sewing clothes when he was 14 in Budapest. Um, as people may know in Hungary, um, the ultra-fascists didn't take over until 1944, but Jews were still subject to um, constraints beginning in, I believe, 1939. So my father was in a labor brigade until 1944 and would have survived if the, if the uh, horrible Hungarian fascists hadn't taken taken over in 1944. And at that point, he was rounded up um, and uh, sent to a death labor camp by the name of Bergen-Belsen. And uh, when people see, and I hope they do see or learn about the horrors of the Holocaust, but when they see those uh, mounds of bodies being moved by uh, bulldozers into uh, open uh, pit graves, and emaciated uh, prisoners uh, on the verge of death. Um, I can tell you that my experience with my father is when we saw some of uh, those videos, my late father, when we saw some of those videos, he would say, I recognize that. Mm -hmm. I was there. Mm -hmm. So he had a horrible experience. He lost um, his twin sister was murdered. His parents were murdered by the Nazis in different camps. Um, he had two sisters who survived because they had gone to then Palestine in the 1930s. And then he had another sister who survived uh, because she was able-bodied, like my father, that's how he survived. He was able to do labor, he was strong, and he survived the year in concentration camp. Uh, and then they emigrated, he emigrated to Canada in 1948. My mother was Polish, she was born in Warsaw. Uh, grew up in a, 
in a Jewish district in a lower middle class home. Her father, we were always raised with the story that her father had a restaurant, but I learned late in life that actually what he ran was an illegal booze can. And I learned <laughs> just a few years ago that my mother's, my grandmother, my mother's mother, uh, used to get arrested all the time for stealing food to sell in the booze can. And it was actually illegal to sell the food that she stole to sell in the booze can. But it was a somewhat celebrated booze can because all the politicians used to used to go there. And um, uh, many Polish Jews, many Warsaw Jews, not all, but many, had a slightly different experience than my father. Um, my mother, who was uh, 14 when the war began, was also able-bodied and was able to work. So she was shipped off to a forced labor camp. So she didn't see uh, big gas chambers. I mean, there she saw people shot. She saw her brother forced to dig his own grave and then be shot uh, by the Nazis uh, into it. She saw her um, mother be deported to an extermination camp. Uh, because uh, her mother was not able-bodied. Uh, but my mother survived through her labor. And um, uh, needless to say, they were both traumatized. But um, my parents both uh, tried to resume Eastern European life after the war. They failed. They then made their way to a refugee camp in 1946. Um, my mother showed up at the refugee camp in Austria she uh, gave her name, was processed by the Red Cross and said, here, here's your room, go to your room. So she goes to the room and apparently there were supposed to be two people to her room. She opens the door and there's a man in there. Hmm. And uh, obviously the other occupant of the room. So she takes the room and one week later, she and the man were married. And that was my father. And even though he was Hungarian and she was Polish, they remained married for 62 years, and um, their trauma, of course, was lives on through us. Um, there's a great poem by uh, Philip Lark, and uh, this be the verse. They fuck you up, your mom and dad. They do not mean to, but they do. They give you all the faults they have, and then they add some just for you. Man hands on misery to man, and it deepens like a coastal shelf. And he goes on to say other things. So that's very much the experience. Um, maybe more de personal detail than you thought, but we grew up in an environment where, and my parents talked about the Holocaust. They were not afraid to, they were not so traumatized. Uh, many uh, children of Holocaust survivors have parents who won't say a word about their ex uh, the parents' experience in the Holocaust or won't discuss it or only find out late in life even that their parents were in the Holocaust. But I grew up in an environment that when my mother would say, oh, I was in camp with her. Uh, it wasn't uh, the yeah. summer experience at Wahanawan. Yeah, it wasn't Fundale. Exactly. Wow. Wow. I have absolutely no idea what it is to have that present, not present, present, not present, throughout someone's life as they grow up with these people that are their parents. What was it like to, to, to know and to, I would assume occasionally forget and then to remember and then to know, what was that like? Well, it's, it's, it's your oxygen. You, you don't know any different. Um, in the same way that uh, um, 
children of immigrants will recognize what I'm about to say, that uh, uh, when your parents uh, speak English as a second or third language, you never realize that they have an accent until late in life. Uh, which is actually true of both my parents. I, uh, I, I thought, I never noticed they had an accent until uh, I heard recordings of them later in life. But in the same way, I never realized that they spoke life with the accent of the Holocaust. And um, uh, it's internalized and it, it's reflected in, in, in a multitude of ways. And, and I'm the third of three boys. I have two, other, two older brothers and we each have different experiences and different outcomes. But for me, uh, I mean, it begins with a, um, a low-level but constant and real and inescapable uh, fear and paranoia uh, of society. Um, there's a great book by the American novelist, I believe it's Nathan Englander. It's a book mm. of short stories called um, uh, What We're Really Talking About When We Talk About Anne Frank. And... Um, it, what he's referring to in the title is what he calls in the book, the Anne Frank game. What's the Anne Frank game? He says, it's a game that every, um, every Eskenaz Jewish person, or certainly every child of Holocaust survivor plays when you meet someone who's not Jewish. And that is you get a sense of who they are. And then you ask yourself, if the Nazis came back, would this person hide me or like Anne yeah. Frank? Or would they betray me to the Nazis? And that's an overstatement of how you go through life. But in many ways, that's how I go through life. So, um, wow. and, 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 and uh, you know, speaking at a generalized level, and I'm, you know, I'm not, no, I was going to say, I'm not speaking of the Jewish community. No, it really does because a thousand people with 10,000 opinions. But um, um, for many people, uh, when, there is a criticism of the state of Israel, for example. Um, then um, there is that sense what what uh, that lurks behind is that you know the Nazis are coming back, and it sounds absurd, but that is a literal truth that 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 we feel at a at a fundamental level. I, I've learned to deal with it, but uh, that's it, that's it, what it's like living with this. It's a trigger, a trigger, trigger. about survival. And yeah, and, and I'm sure it's true for, for refugees from Syria today, from people from Rwanda. I'm just reading about a case in, in Britain uh, about a Rwandan refu refugee who's having immigration problems. And, and, and it's, or this might be in Canada, actually. And it, when I read about the fact that this Rwandan refu refugee um, has uh, all sorts of deep lying issues triggered from the uh, uh, genocide that took place uh, some uh, almost 20 years ago. Um, that's exactly what it's like to live with. Uh, but, you know, this is where I'm at. And, you know, you're afraid, you're not afraid, but you're very self-conscious about saying you're Jewish. You know, you mentioned J Jackie Mason before. Jackie yeah. Mason had this thing. It's like, you know, People, a lot of Jews don't like what I do. Gentiles don't care. Jews don't like what I do. Why don't they like what I do? Because I'm too Jewish. They, they tell me, could you be a little less Jewish? Why do you have to be so Jewish? And part well, of look that, at the, look at the Hollywood actors, right? I mean, yeah. there's a wonderful book by Neil Gabler called An Empire of Their Own, How the Jews Invented Hollywood. And the laundering of the Jewish reputation and, and identity by all five of these Jews who are the, the studio builders of LA and Hollywood, 
um, is to start synagogues that are more like churches, to intermarry, to, to really do what they could to wipe out everything that they had come from. And it's a conundrum in Judaism at all times, and, and right now it's still a conundrum for Jews. Let me, there's something, it's difficult. Okay, so here's, somebody told me this, and it's a version of a, a joke. Uh, and he says, um, this um, man lives his life, and uh, he's gone through the Holocaust, and uh, he dies. And he goes to heaven and God is there. And God says, okay, I'll let you in, but do you know any jokes? He goes, yeah, no, I got one. I got a Holocaust joke. He goes, okay, let me hear it. Uh, and he says, you know, a guy goes into a camp and gets himself killed and there's six, five million nine hundred ninety-nine thousand other people too. And God looks at him and goes, I don't get it. Goes, well, you had to be there. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> no, right? Right. So, where in your constellation of Jewishness is God? Ah. Somehow I knew we were going to get to this question. Um, well, if I'm honest, nowhere. Uh, I, uh, this isn't a, uh, on my part, a, a doctrine. This isn't anything I've developed. It's a state that I've been in from birth, and I've, I've hesitated to identify it, and then I realize it just happens to be my truth. So I consider myself to be a literal agnostic. Um, and remember, of course, that agnostic means without knowledge. And I don't know. I, I don't know. Um, what I really am uh, you know, my wife, Daniela, who is super spiritual and would be on the other end of this conversation, uh, says, I'm in my head. I live in my head. And maybe I do. You know, I, there, there is a Jewish intellectual tradition, and I have way too many university degrees, blah, blah. And, um, um, uh, not, and maybe I intellectualize things too much. But one of the three top thinkers... So, the three thinkers in my life, the three formative influences in my life, the three gods in my life, if God is a formative influence, if, if God is the creator of everything who I am, are uh, the, the great critic who happened to be a Methodist minister, Northrop Fry, um, the great thinker and writer who happened to be a pianist, Glenn Gould, and the great philosopher, Ludwig Wittgenstein. And, you know, Wittgenstein said that all, he didn't say this, but a summary, maybe a bad one of his philosophy is that all philosophical problems are problems of language. And I, that is a go-to for me at a, at a theological fundamental level. And so you ask me, um, where is my God? So first of all, I don't know, like, I, I don't know if there's a God. We're, like, there's no evidence to me that there's a God. And we can get onto that. You know, I'm, I'm very much a materialist in that sense. I, like, I believe there are atoms and electrical signals and they make it happen. And we can have a whole discussion about that. But before I even go there, you ask me, where is there a God? And I say, how is that a meaningful question? Why do I have to answer that question? What's a God? You know, you know, there are millions of gods anyway. You know, uh, uh, what's his name? The guy who's the guy who's um, 
who took over from John Stewart, the brilliant uh, oh, uh, uh, Trevor Noah. Trevor Noah, the brilliant, brilliant, brilliant comedian. I think he's, I think he is the the man of our time. Uh, and he has this thing about the English invading. You know what what it must have been like the day the English invaded India, and and you know what coming in on a horse and and there's a, an Indian farmer in the middle of of his farm and 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 some English soldier walks in on a on a steed and says we are here in in the name of God to take your country and the Indian I can't do an Indian accent the Indian accent says well well who, who are you taking it and the English uh, officer says god and the indian says which god and the englishman says god what do you mean god and the indian says well which god what's the name of of the god and the Englishman says the name of god is god and you know they get into this obviously you know, <laughs> you know sounds like hindu, a monty python sketch actually. yeah hindu religion and and, and you know and, and it's well but i i would by the way interject that in the sure. hindu religion from what i've understood uh, there is a, a, a misconception in Western uh, society that there are many gods, that there are, there are a polytheistic faith. They are the different faces of God. They have 8,000 ah. faces of God. It ah. isn't that okay. God is, is 8,000 different deities. It is that you use different things to describe different aspects of divine existence, but it is all within a unity. And uh, like all theistic religions there is a god and but god is unknowable at one point you said that um you know um you can't prove it what why ask me about something that as a materialist i can't say here it is right here and then you know i mean often on this show i've uh, said to people okay we'll prove love you can't prove it yeah and yet and yet you write songs about it. You think about it. You're afraid you're going to lose it. You're so happy when you find it. You then think you're losing it again. So you're freaking out. It's it's not something you can put on the shelf and go look, love. So I've heard you say that, that before. I've heard I you know, say that. But it's mystery. Yeah. Like there's mystery. Yeah. And and Wittgenstein, by the way, who it, the funny thing about Wittgenstein, the philosopher, who I go to all the time, and he's he's seen as a great logician and. And he is uh, seen as as ultra cerebral, and I I get that from him. But here's the great irony: first of all, he was born to a, an Austrian Jewish family, and he converted to Catholicism, and and was was a believer in it, you know, in 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 his life. But beyond that, in his one of his great works, the Tractatus Logico Philosophicus, he when he get when he gets to the end of logic he I'm, I'm paraphrasing badly but the idea is when you get to the end of logic when you get to the end of mind when you get to the end of what for me i can connect with and where where uh where the point at which i do not connect with religion starts he says all that remains is mystery i'm not saying there's not mystery i'm not saying there's not a god there is love and by the way if i wanted to quibble with you because i have heard you make that point before i'm, I'm not going to quibble but I, yes, you are. Yeah, what I'm about to. <laughs> you know, love produces uh, uh, chemical and physical reactions. Of course. Right? Of oh, course. Of okay. course. But okay, there's but a somatic experience to everything in yes. life. That I don't get that doesn't I don't mean get a it's triggered from, by but it doesn't mean it's triggered by chemicals. It I don't means get chemicals a bulge from a reaction. Yes, I don't get a bulge from God. I'm just saying. I hear you. But when I think about your music. I get a bolts from my music. Music is a mystery. No, you know, no, no. I wanted your when you said that 
uh, Danny sees you, your, your wife sees that you're in your head. Yeah. Right. And it's easy because you have a really good head. You can go and play in there for a very long time. But yet when I listen to your music, I'm not listening to the music of somebody (laughs) who's in their head. If you were in your head, it would be boring (laughs) as batshit. You're not there. So where's, where is that, that spark? Where does it come from? How do you, how do you access it? And is it just yours or do you share it with, with, with things that you don't know? So there is some, Oh, Okay, so you just <laughs> you just made my point. You just made my point. Now I'm being the lawyer. I'd love but, to make your but, point. But uh, and I'll, when you, hold that, but you just don't know. Hold that. Hold that thought. But let me, but you were talking about Danny and how do I make music if I'm always in my head and it would be intellectualized. So the other thing that Danny says is like the one time you're not in your head is when you're playing music. How come they can't give me more of that? She says. Right. And and you know I I get it. She has a point. I'm not saying there isn't more. I'm not saying that that uh, there isn't something else there. In fact, if I am truly uh, with Wittgenstein, um, then what I'm saying is that everything will take us to a point, and then there's a mystery, and that's why I say I'm an agnostic. And what does agnostic mean? It means I don't know, and that's what you just said. You just don't know. There's something there. Look, I'm not saying that people shouldn't be godly. I'm not saying that people shouldn't be ethical. I'm not saying that... Um, the ethics that are, are transmitted in the name of God, rarely observed, but often or too often observed in the in the breach rather than in the practice, um, aren't you know aren't present. Um, I don't know why I believe in good and bad, but I do believe in good and bad. I don't know why I believe to murder, and it's not just utilitarian. I don't believe that murder is bad because I don't want to be murdered myself. I honestly believe that murder is bad. I believe that stealing is bad. I believe that we should be charitable. I believe that we do need to love. I, I do believe that race, you know, that that racism and and that degrading other people, not only you know, people, you know, my background, Jewish background, but degrading people is in general is bad, and that all fits into a a. Can I call it a theistic type or theocratic type um, uh, ethos? Uh, but what I am saying is like God, you know, this individuation or this this uh, anthropomorphic. Thank you. Uh, instantiation of 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 of, of a concept. Yeah, but, that, but that's or, a Disneyfication of God. That is fine. A, that's Santa Claus. That's not God. Well, fine. But even the name God. You know, okay, which, but you need, you know, sometimes you need something to identify uh, that you're having a conversation about something. It, it, it's just a, a placeholder. Yud hey vav hey, you know, you're not even isn't supposed it beautiful? to know the name. Yeah, you're not even. What you just said is like incredibly deep because I'm not sure if people know this, but in the Jewish religion, uh, you're not you're not supposed to say God's name on pain of death. Right, um, which is why Orthodox people say Hashem. That's right. Name. Adonai or Elohim, uh, it's 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 a placeholder. It's profane to to have the arrogance to think that you know who you're talking to. That's why I'm yeah. always amazed when people say God told me. I went, wait a minute, God actually told you something? That's fantastic. Which is not the same as you she, are. In, she yeah. told you. Yeah, that's right. It's, <laughs> not, it's not the same as I yeah. am trying to make myself available to what's already all around me at all times. The miracle of constant pulsing creation and that as an artist you have to find your way to that pulsing moment of creation to that ability to to put your hands on those keys and stop thinking stop talking stop explaining stop defending 
and just leave yourself to what is coming out of the ends of those fingers and into that into this ether so that i listen and in a, in a religious experience i commune with what you're doing i mean i would i wish that was the tr the way the world worked uh, you know you're right but music yes me i agree that's how music works and maybe that's why people connect you know you can have an audience from left wing to right wing to young to, to everything yeah. to catholic to, and 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 they listen to music and they can commune and maybe that's why but but you know and and would that it were so that when people were talking about God, they were talking about that. But that's not what they're talking about. Well, Maybe you. Yeah, no, no. That, the, the, to, we have to be, in my opinion, quite careful to not constantly push ourselves to the um, almost pediatric version of what people who feel that they have religion in their life are, are really about. And that it's simplifying them into being these people who have naive notions that you know a good pat on the head should solve is not a good idea in my opinion because really what religion and i've said this before is a fitness program if you don't have shabbat every friday night and saturday then what the hell it's friday it's saturday it's tuesday it's thursday every day is the same let's go buy some stuff at canadian tire let's keep moving uh, let's just keep doing stuff if you don't build a, a fence around something sacred in your life and protect it then you can't cultivate it. It's a garden that won't grow. So for people who believe that there is some, if you don't practice your chops on piano and you just keep thinking, I'm good at this, and six years later you sit down to play, you suck because you're not good enough to just never pay attention to the discipline of your, of your art. And things require discipline. Today, it, as we said at the beginning, Tisha B'Av is a day of fasting. What's fasting about? It's not about punishing yourself. It's about self-restraint. It's about discipline. It's about order. And that we need these signposts in our life or else every day is sweatpant day. And we all think that's great for about three weeks. And then we get depressed because we think, crap, I haven't had the reason to get out of here in three weeks. Look what's happening to the world now. It's a great opportunity for creative destruction. It's a great opportunity for all the mindless things we've been doing to consume and attack the planet can actually be pulled back for a minute and go, what have I been thinking? I've been driving four hours a day to a job I don't like in a place I don't understand. What am I doing with my life? And it might make us do different things. We might push ourselves off the cliff or we might just stand and go, you want to quit or do you want me to get <laughs> right? I think that's already done. I think we are doing things differently. But look, you know, your point, it's funny you, you talk about the um, view or framing uh, certain, you know, having the Sabbath as, because if we didn't have the Sabbath, then every day would be the same. So my father, who was raised in this ultra-Orthodox environment and ran away from it because it was so oppressive, um, when when we grew up here, of course, he decided he would be be religious but he also harbored many contradictions. You know, what did uh, Walt Whitman say? So I contradict myself, I am Lars. Well, my father would be observant about the Jewish Sabbath, but after he went to synagogue, he would go to the horse rate, to the horse track to, to bed <laughs> on the afternoon. I kid you not. I mean, it was very, no, but very I mean, charming. But that's the thing about religion is not about perfection. It's about it's not. It's about looking for a framework and a, and a, a scaffolding in which one can build a remembering of life. So when you go to a synagogue on a Saturday morning and you read the Torah portion in English, in our case, 
you extract from that one or two pieces that you want to pay attention to and think about while you're sitting there and standing up and sitting and standing up. And then you go home and think, really? So let me think about this for a minute. They finally give freedom to the Jews and they, they get across the water and they can't handle it. All they've ever wanted in their life is freedom and they're horrible at it. They've immediately, the first chance they get where they think they're going to be disappointed, they go and build a golden calf. They can't even wait 40 days. They just have to do this. Human beings, frailties and weaknesses. The Torah, the best part to me is it's this story of how really broken we are as people and how often we fail. You know, Cain, Abel, how often we fail. It's not about perfection. It's about a path. And well, I, you know, I was going to say that my father would always say, who is very different from you, but um, would say that uh, if we didn't have the Old Testament, then every day would be the same. That was his justification for religion. And, you know, there's that view that that very much the Old Testament and, you know, and, and also the New Testament. And uh, I've, I've had discussions with uh, with. Uh, quite a few Roman Catholic priests uh, on this point, who, who, who and and also um, uh, Presbyterian uh, ministers uh, on how the uh, New Testament um, is is a extrapolation. As one one priest put it, ninety percent of it is quotes from the Old Testament. So it's a different discussion. But the point is, is that the Old Testament, for sure, and to many degrees, the New Testament are can be seen as, in the broader sense, not only making differentiation in giving differentiation in your life, but imposing an ethical framework on people right. who are, as you say, otherwise broken and who need some sort of imposition of a framework. Well, we but, all need. We all need. Look, I mean, a stoplight has a purpose. You know, uh, a four-way stop has a purpose. If we just went, you know what, I think I can handle it. It's like the masks right now. Yeah, I don't need a mask. Look, the virus doesn't care what your ideology is. It'll kill you. As the so, economist says, uh, you may not, uh, you may not uh, care about the virus, but it cares about you. <laughs> exactly. All yeah. right, so here's, I, I want to pivot because uh, we'll, we'll do a few more minutes. Y- y- music. You could have been a very successful lawyer and done, and you do law practice to a degree now, but you, you could have, like your brother, and you know, had the nice cottage, made a killing, had a good time, all that stuff. Um, you could have been a, a professor of French literature at the University of Toronto. Linguistics, French linguistics. linguistics. Sorry, sorry. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you could have been that. You, you know, uh, and then you decide on this thing, which. It is as I always say to people, you don't pick jazz to get rich or famous. It's never going to happen. How, how do you end up with a million dollars in jazz? Uh. Start with two. <laughs> <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> so, what compels you for the 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 path less traveled? What is it? So, as my father would say, you know, the one thing you can say about Judaism. At least Ashkenaz Judaism is a jokes, you know? Yeah. It's religion with jokes. Moroccans don't have a lot of jokes. So you have to make them up yourself. Yeah, said the st- Moroccan stand-up comedian. <laughs> uh, but um, uh, my father would say, because my father's dream as the impoverished immigrant was just, my son should be a lawyer. I said, I don't want to be a lawyer. What do you mean you don't want to be a lawyer? Who doesn't want to be a lawyer? <laughs> so after I, I got my law degree and I had some success and then I became interested in academics and I did 
his doctorate in French, and then I became an assistant professor in French linguistics. Um, I, I came back to jazz 23 years ago, and my father would say, Ay, Ronnie, you're a lawyer, you're a French professor, and now you're going to be a jazz pianist? Oy, why did I immigrate to Canada? I should have stayed over there better than I should see this. It was the biggest tragedy for him. <laughs> yeah, you know, it, it wasn't it's certainly not a way to make money. I mean, you know, I was actually going to kind of, before you pivoted, and thank goodness you did, because otherwise I would have gone on to another tangent. I was going to say, like, why do we need differentiation between days? Every day, every day, every minute. I hope I try and live. I don't succeed. I fail enormously. But I, I, all those principles that you talk about us taking away on Saturday, I, I try and take out of the air. I, I, like, I, I feel I don't, I don't get anything from that. I, every minute's a challenge to me. So to, to answer your question, I, why did I become a jazz musician? There wasn't a why. It happened. It happened. I naturally gravitated toward. I gave up. I also. I always joke that that my jazz career is. I'm. I'm it's the ten million dollar jazz career because if you add up the money I would have made as a lawyer over the years <laughs> on the one hand, and all like it's very expensive to be a musician. You know, you end up with a lot of expenses, and you know it's millions and millions of dollars. Um, I don't regret a moment. I, I have to tell you, COVID has put an end to music. Like I, I am not a musician anymore at the moment, as and I know you've heard this from many artists. Um, whether I will be a musician again is is unknown. Maybe I will. Maybe I, am I not mean musician? I mean performing musician. Huh. Um, That's a um, big thing to say. It's true. And and, and you know I'm um, uh, I'm I'm 62 years old. Um, although my hair hasn't changed color yet, and I don't I dye it. What's the deal with that? I don't know. I, 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 I mean, I'm theories. happy I still have hair, but yours is like look the I, same I have a forever. lot of hair, yeah, and and it still has. Where's the gray? Color. What's the, what? There's a little bit of gray there. There's gray on parts I'm not prepared to show unless you pay me a lot of money. <laughs> um, but um, 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 I have. Okay, so you may but, you're saying yeah. I I may not be a performing jazz musician anymore, which I find shocking. But carry on. It's, it's, you know, because it's, it's it chose compromise. you, you didn't choose, yeah. you, it chose you. Yeah. And, and actually is literally Are you angry true. at it. No, no. Do you I, think, I, Oh, no, great. I'm... Look how you've made my life that I have to like, you know, how much you're going to give me for the night. You no, know? Well, partly, but I'm more like Stanley Tucci in, in what was that great movie with Nathan Lane where he plays an actor and uh, he always, he never quite gets the parts. And, 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 and at one point he's talking to Nathan Lane and they find out that someone else got the audition and, and Stucci goes, Stucci goes, she got the, or he got the part, you know, that, yeah. a more, whatever you call that hurt or, you know, I mean, envy, uh, envy, uh, ego bruised, you know, and, yeah, and, yeah, it's a tough, and, and any performing business, any performing, and you'll, you'll, you'll sympathize with this. It's like, sure, sure. you could get a thousand good reviews and one bad review, but the only one that counts is a bad review. Well, I've never been that person, uh, because wow. I realized it was going to kill me very early in my life. And I thought, if you're willing to believe the good reviews, you better start thinking about the bad ones as true as well and read something in them and find something because they're dispassionate. They're telling you that you sucked at this. I did a TV show where 40 different uh, critics told me I was uh, an embarrassment, awful, the worst thing that's ever happened to Canadian television. I went home every night and I had children to, to love and, and a family to take care of. And I just thought, this that's my job. It's not me. It's not my life. 
Like I don't, I don't, I don't want to attach myself to what other people think good and bad. Hmm. You know, we used to come off the stage at Yuck Yucks and Breslin would, would, as you were walking off, would tell you, you did well or didn't do well. Very vulnerable moment. You've just finished your set. And I realized it's really, I'll know whether I did well or didn't do well. I don't need Mark to tell me that. I'll just walk off and realize I wasn't quite there tonight. Or you know what? That was, that was what I wanted to do tonight. That was good. I envy you know, that, Gene. I envy you that. You don't have that one, eh? I, I and, you know, there are others that I know. Uh, yeah, yeah. But there are others that I know, you know, who, who have what you have. And, you know, there's also, especially among my American colleagues, who there's just this confidence. When I tell them how I feel, there, there's no comprehension. And sometimes I, I joke. Uh, part of the reason why American jazz players are so good is be, and, and not just picking out Americans. I'm just, yeah, yeah. part of the reason they're so good is because they tell you they're so good, you know, and I never, <laughs> I never, I never had that. It's like, you know, it's, it's, it's very much Jewish culture. I think you might, at least Ashkenaz Jewish culture, you recognize this. Ashkenaz Jewish culture is, is never the glass is half full and it's not even the glass is half empty. It's not only it's half empty, it's cracked. There's a spot on it and it's about to be totally empty. Now, and, how and much do you think that has to do with being a child of the Holocaust? A million not, percent. Because you can't, it's not right for you to be happy and have a good life. It, it would be a, a betrayal of your parents. Um, it's a million percent. And I mean, you know, um, which is why like being a performer, even though I get kudos and I've had, I've had some amazing, amazing moments. And even to hear the generosity of your words at the outset about my playing, which of course I don't process this like, you know, I don't believe, you know, um, uh, is, is, is even though I've had that, it's, it's not something that I can feel. I can recognize it from the outside and you know, what's, 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 you know, I, we talked about the top, and I know we're we're heading towards the the, the finale here. So I'll 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 do a callback to the beginning of our conversation. You know that that there's this physical manifestation with COVID that we're having to be living through at the moment that that represents either something in, in society or, or 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 and that has thrown us into behaviors that will force the societal and the spiritual behavior that maybe we should have. Through physical means, well, you know, um, uh, I, I released my 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 twelfth record last year, uh, and and you know, not all of them the great, but some of them I truly believe in. But I never got the recognition from the industry that I I I, I I'll confess that I I wanted. I, I right. my ego wanted that was the one thing I wanted from the industry. I never got an award. I never got a, a nomination. And then uh, I, I released a, a, a record last year. And and it didn't get a nomination, and and so I I resubmitted it again as I said with a lot of two hundred rules this year to the, to the Juno Awards, and I said, oh, what the hell, you know, uh, we'll see. And and uh, I actually got a phone call the day before the Juno nominations came out, and it led me to believe wrongly that that the word was out I wasn't going to be nominated, and I felt, oh, okay, the business doesn't want to recognize me. I'll keep doing what I do. I don't know why I do it. I, there's a satisfaction when I'm on stage and I've had great colleagues. That, by the way, that is the number one thing, the great musicians I get to work with. It's such a joy. And then I got nominated for the Juno and, and I got that recognition. I didn't win, but it's fine. You know, wonderful. How did you feel won. when, when you found out you actually had been nominated? It was one of the rare moments in my musical career when I felt satisfied, validated, 
and I'm going to use the H word here, happy. And, and it's not because I, you know, my chest was puffed out and my peacock mm. feathers were spread. It's because there was some value to what I did and someone out, out there recognized it. And, and, you know, why do I do music? You know why I went to music to answer your question and I, right. and I find it less elsewhere? Connection. I got, how did you and I meet? I connected with you. That's God. That to me is God. That is spirituality. It's the connection. And Jesus and, said, when two people are, are together, I am there. I mean, that, that's the whole point of it. It, it. The divine spark can only happen. It doesn't happen by yourself. That's why the aesthetic route doesn't really do it for me. I don't want to sit in the top of a cliff by myself forever. It's only engaging with people. Conquering the feeling of separateness is an important part of one's life. Because, you know, some people say, you live alone, you die alone. <laughs> and I say, no, we're all walking each other home. It's all we're doing. But we should be walking consciously each other home. We should well, find those moments together where we just say, you know, I'm not going to just let all this pass. Well, we should get together. In Toronto, when I lived in Toronto, <laughs> I'd say we should get together to people. And a year and a half later, they'd find a, a weekend where they might be able yeah. to get together. That's and great. that, you know, to me, that's why I did uh, Friday nights, why I did Sabbath dinners. It's like, just pick one. I'll give you three dates, pick one. And then people were all of a sudden together who would never be together. And that's the, the structure that I think, okay, this is a container and music is a container. You know, we can talk about stuff and then we go into this room and you sit down at a piano and you start playing and I'm no longer just in this room. I'm floating with these other people in this experience. And when it's over, I'm not the same as I was before it started. And I know mm -hmm. you're not great at being happy, <laughs> I, you know, but you still bring joy. So there's, there's a lovely ability to do something that has been harder for you to find because the generational trauma that you carry around as a suitcase is not going to just go away because you'd like it to. Mm. It's just what you got to live with. But on the other hand, instead of just t telling everybody, look at this suitcase, see this awful stuff in here. This is horrible. You went, I think I'll go sit at that piano and play. And what a lovely thing. It's a lovely oh, thing. It works for me. Yeah, it works for me too. Mr. Davis. Bless you. Bless I'm giving you. you a blessing. Thank you. And uh, I'll give you a blessing. May you continue to play music. May you continue to play it in front of people. May you never give up on the beauty that is inside your soul and always share it as generously as you possibly can. I'm, I'm truly humbled. And I mean, not to deflect, but um, partly right back at you. And I want to give you a specific blessing about the work you're doing now with this incredible podcast. It is putting out um, uh, thoughts and feelings and spirituality that are uh, frankly, I, I had no idea we're there uh, before. It's introducing me to people that uh, names I did know, I didn't know. You're Biff Naked. I'd, I'd heard the name Biff Naked, but I'd mm -hmm. never known the person. And that podcast just blew me away, her interview <laughs> with her, even though I suspect she and I are on different uh, you know, sides of the, uh, of the spectrum. So bless you for the work you're doing. Uh, and and for and may you keep on going and may your spouse and your children be happy and healthy and and may we have uh, many years together of of blessings. Lovely. 
Ron Davis, uh, look up his, where's, tell people your website so they can look, buy your music and listen to your music. RonDavisMusic.com or just go to Spotify and you can find it all there. Absolutely. Ron Davis has been my guest. I'm Ralph ben Murgy. This is Not That Kind of Rabbi. I thank you for your attention, whatever piece of your attention you gave us during this time. Uh, and I wish you all only the best and the strength that you need to get through the up and the down of what we call life at this point. Or as uh, Stephen Jenkinson, who wrote the wonderful book, Die Wise, um, the human lifespan is not life. It is just the moment that we have to be able to do something with life. Take care of each other. I'll see you soon. If you want to get in touch with me, it's at Ralph Ben Murgy on Twitter or Ralph Ben Murgy at gmail.com. Bye.
podcast has been produced by TMDS and accelerated by Rome Phone. Rome Phone brings you the most reliable virtual phone service to run your business and protect your home number from unwanted calls. Visit romephone.ca to get started.